Let's start with some tough love, all right? You two suck. Say my name. That's what the kids call Prissy guy with the mustache. You're listening to Inside the Gillivers talking all things Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. Brought to you by Stewart Travel Guitars. See the incredible stowaway travel guitar at stewartguitars.com. Also brought to you by Idea Bench, makers of hot rod inspired pedal boards and pedal board accessories at ideabench.com. Microphones for Inside the Gillivers are brought to you by Rode Microphones. Now, please welcome your hosts, Tom Schnauz and Eric Broadbent. It's showtime, folks. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for episode 10 of Inside the Gilliverse, where we talk all things Breaking Bad, El Camino, Better Call Saul, and you never even know, maybe even some Spinal Tap this evening. My name is Eric Broadbent, and it comes with great pleasure to always welcome my co-host, writer, director, and producer for Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. And sadly, this is his last episode this evening. Uh, so, Tom, we need your desk cleaned out by 10. We'll do our best to validate your parking. And you've been known to walk off set with a few things. So we're going to be having someone escort you to your vehicle. But, Tom, nice to have you back, my friend. How are you? I got this cool shirt. You're not taking it from me. Oh, <laughs> and, you know, it's going to be very hard to keep me away. You know, I'll, I'll be, I know I'll be back. Good, good. Well, you I just have to finish writing some scripts. Yeah, just a couple things for a little show. Just a couple of things to do. Um, but uh, tonight, we have a great, amazing guest. So happy he's here. Come smell the glove with us. It is Michael McKeon. Hi, boys. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And we just have to start off because uh, Eric prepared a little something for a very special day tomorrow. We understand that uh, someone's having a birthday. And there's a click. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, if you want to go ahead and introduce the clip you uh, you put together, I will. I'll do that for us. We had a few a few familiar faces, some people that you know quite well, and uh, the voice that you heard at the beginning of the show here—that's our voice artist, Paul Sura. So, you're not going to be able to see this right now, Michael. You will hear it. So, I'm going to send a link back to this to Harriet later. Get her, oh. to, and you're going to love this. So, see if you can oh. recognize these people. Here you go. One yeah. second here. Hey, Michael. Happy birthday. My name's Paul Sir out here in the Phoenix, Arizona area. I uh, hope you're having a better day today than like a uh, finale of Better Call Saul season three or whenever that was when you died tragically in a fire. But let's face it, you kicked over like an oil lamp in the middle of a bushel full of newspapers. So kind of inevitable. But regardless, hope you're having a better day today and wishing you many more. Hi. June and I wanted to wish you, Mike... Michael McKean, a very happy birthday. Right, June? I hope it's a real good one. Happy birthday, Michael. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Michael. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. That's so sweet. So while you await those those visuals, we had uh, Paul Sura kicking it off at the beginning, our voice artist. Then we had Peter Dyseth, who plays uh, Bill Oakley on the show with his cat, June. And I think you saw his self-tape audition where the cat made the entrance and knocked down his screen uh, on Twitter. Yeah, of course. So, so phenomenal. So that you'll see that. And then we had uh, your uh, your uh, partner there from uh, HHM, uh, Patrick Fabian, doing a nice little birthday wish on the piano. And then Julianne Emery and, and her better half, Kevin Early, wishing That's you a happy right. birthday as well to you. That's very nice. That's very it's a nice bunch of people. They are. We, we love them. <laughs> it's Gilliver's family. That's what it is for sure. So we have a bunch of questions coming in right off the hop. I'm getting them sent to right. me from my better half. We'll start with that. Tom and I have a few as I well. Could only ask, I could only answer questions about uh, things that happened during Charles McGill's lifetime. Okay. So don't I, this, you won't get no Easter eggs from me. <laughs> <laughs> and well, maybe, well, I can only tell you the truth. Okay. And that same, that goes for you, too. You can't be asking Tom for Easter eggs or if, if we're going to see a, some flashbacks of Chuck. We can, so it's got to be fair, right? Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can I, start, I just want to ask, uh, how long have you known Bob Odenkirk? Because you appeared on Mr. Show. 
Yes. I mean, a great uh, John Houseman. I uh, was. I was. I met uh, Bob when I was doing SNL. He had been a writer on SNL previous season or maybe a season and a half ago. Um, and he, of course, had, you know, he had friends all over the building. And, and uh, he was one of those guys I'd always see. And it's a really funny guy. And I'd hear the name Odenkirk, but I didn't put the two together. So finally, I went over and introduced myself. And he went, yeah, OK, we, we've met we've met like three times. And I was like, well, cool, frosty. And I kind of chased after him. I said, no, we've been in the same room and I've laughed at things you've said. But I anyway, so <laughs> a couple of years after that, Mr. Show was was really gearing up. Uh, I was such a huge fan. And I went over to him at, uh, some events at Paramount, I think, Star Trek event, maybe. And I just said, oh, boy, at our place, we worship at the shrine of Mr. Show. So I wound up. I didn't mean to, but I wound up getting a gig, and it was really, really fun. I, I'd known David a little bit, and uh, but that, that's that's. And then I did, really didn't see him. I saw him occasionally. I saw him once in Aspen. I saw him uh, when he came to see the Credibility Gap show. Uh, David uh, Lander, Harry Shearer, and myself got together and did a, a piece from the old days uh, as part of a thing at Museum of Broadcasting or whatever it was. And he was great. He was great to come by and. So, yeah, he's always a guy I really admired. Just watching him grow as an actor has been so thrilling, you know, especially as a guy who was always told, you got to make a decision. Are you going to be a really good actor? Or are you going to be a funny actor? And it's like, I want to be I want to be Alan Arkin. What's he? You know, and it's like Bob is a similar thing. It's like he's a guy who's just got chops no matter what he does. The great comparison, Alan Arkin. I never made that connection, but it's, it's really perfect. Yeah. No. You know, that's like my favorite songwriters can break your heart or they can make you laugh. You know, the, the best ones can do that. Randy Newman can do both. Loudon Wainwright, uh, you know, Richard, uh, Richard Thompson. You know, it's my favorite, favorite songwriter. Mm -hmm. Speaking of songwriting, you and your wife Oscar nominated for yeah. Mighty Wind. Is that a song that you had or did you, no. you no, commission to write for the movie? We wrote, uh, we wrote a song for, for the movie that, uh, Chris really liked for the the new Main Street singers to do potatoes in the paddy wagon, and he said, "You guys want to have a shot? We need a love song that uh, that maybe suggests that there's a kiss, you know, some kind of thing." So I I started working on it, and and then Nettie helped me finish it, and then we sang it together for a demo, and you know, kind of made a duet out of it, and then Chris kind of put it in the movie as a character, really, you know, that it's not just a song; it's it's kind of what they are about what those those two strange lost souls were really about uh i thought it was thought it was very very good use of the thing and it it, it turned out nicely it was a yeah, great great song perfect for the movie so i let's get to some fan questions eric I know yeah, there's a certainly bunch yeah no problem um i'm going to jump over to a super chat question we'll circle back this is from shashank i know shashank uh, shares that uh, chuck is his favorite character but he's saying do you believe chuck looks down on jimmy because of his strong ethical code or do you believe it's because of jealousy you know the glib answer that i used to to give people was um chuck made his mother proud jimmy made his mother laugh and it's just, it's one of those immeasurable things. It's that both have great value, but Chuck felt somehow shortchanged, especially, especially since G Jimmy was not that easy to handle growing up, nor having grown up, uh, as we know. I mean, yeah. this guy didn't make a lot of great life choices. <laughs> Chuck made all the right choices and yet still felt like he never had the same level of joy from his mother or for his mother. But you know what, Chuck is uh, one of those guys graduated from high school at 16, you know, had his law degree by the time he was 23. You know, he was a, a monster of that type. And those people are sometimes very lonely and they can construct all kinds of universes to get lost in. So I've answered much more than your question and dodged it at the same time. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, I'm glad he asked that question because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be selfish for one brief moment. I'm going to ask a question that related to that. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I've heard you talk about the being the proud and, and the laughter. Let's just say that Chuck made mom uh, laugh. 
Jamie did something, you know, hard to believe, but maybe made her proud. Would the relationship between the brothers uh, be any different, better or worse, do you think? I mean, we're hypothesizing here, but. Yeah, you, you, you can't just. You know what? Birth order has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. The fact that Chuck was a great deal older than Jimmy had something to do with it. I think this, you know, I think what these guys wrote. And when I say these guys, I'm talking about all young, all young guys. Um, it, it really did develop over time. You know, I, I, I think that they let the story take them. Uh, and that's that El- Elmore Leonard thing. I just I just make up the characters and have them do the rest. You know, and it's not quite that simple as as anyone who's actually written for a living knows. But to really to, to create on a palette that includes the actors, that includes the input they're getting from directors and from designers. And, you know, the show, the, the show is father to the show in a funny way. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I always appreciated when they told me things like when they would say things like, you know, you and you and Bob really are kind of suggesting things that you don't even know. You're just playing the scenes, but your relationship is kind of growing uh, in ways that we didn't see. That was very flattering. And I think it turned out to be a really wonderful way for Jimmy's life to turn or to begin turning anyway. Yeah. Oh, very well said. And that's the thing, too. I mean, yeah, Michael, Michael's performance absolutely influenced where we went with the character because originally he was started off as just the, the Mycroft Holmes of the show where Jimmy was going to be in trouble and go to his brother who was, who was so intelligent, knew everything about the law and come for answers. And that quickly didn't go away, but we, you know, we, we noticed the pride that, that, that Michael brought to the character of Chuck McGill. And then we started thinking, well, why would he be okay with a slipping Jimmy and it just it just went from there, and it really helped us turn the direction we went in season one. I can't add anything to that. I wasn't in the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, you you could see the relationship just really, really grow. I mean, in in good ways and bad ways, more bad ways than not. But you know, it was. And I know I've watched some interviews with you as well too, Michael, where people come up and say, you know, I hated Chuck. I hated Chuck. But I mean, that's the thing. There's there's the, the the way that you portray him and the way that these writers write that. I mean, that you can love a character or hate a character, and it's all from the way that's portrayed. So you've done a, a phenomenal job, and I was sad to see you go. Even though I wasn't the biggest Chuck fan, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a Team Jimmy guy, um, but. You know, I missed you greatly. But here's some questions here. I didn't get a chance to watch a lot of X-Files stuff. And uh, and this is a – Tom shared a really nice picture today of the two of you on set. Nice. Yeah, it was beautiful to see. And then someone said, no, that's that's modern-day Lenny and Squiggy, which was kind of cute. Uh, <laughs> I can see you pulling – both of you pulling it up, obviously. Uh, so this is a question from Let Anna. How much did you and David have to practice the great mirror scene in Dreamland, one of my favorite X-Files episodes? And I've never seen it, so I don't even know. So We shot it uh, – kind of the middle of the second week. It was a four-week shoot for the two-parter. And um, we rehearsed it every single day. Every day, we took a half an hour off of our lunch break, and we just we, we did the thing. When there was a mirror available, we did it there. When it was just each other available, we did it, you know, we did it face-to-face. But we were always drilling it. And we had time to drill it, because we were out in the desert in the middle of the night, and uh, listening to the coyotes, and uh, you know, watching the the, the lights fall apart. So, how closely, uh, how closely did you guys look at the duck soup scene, or did you just do your own? We watched it once. Uh, the choreography was necessarily slightly different because in the duck soup, they're uh, they're tricking each other, and this is supposed to be reality. It's supposed to be the real reflection. Uh, it's a light moment, but it's not, you know, Harpo, you know, punking Groucho. So it's just a different deal. So we just had to be precise and, and kind of work off each other. Um, yeah. <laughs> Last time I saw David was in New York about four years ago. And um, I, I had this big beard at the time. I was doing uh, a Little Foxes. And... Uh, so I'd see him in the restaurant. We'd go over and say hi. And I said, this is not going to work unless I shave, right? Because <laughs> we always talked about, now we'll always be able to do this. But of course, <laughs> being an actor, it leaves your brain once you don't need it anymore. 
it was such a great great casting as Morris Fletcher. And we were, you know, it was such fun to have you on the Lone Gunman as well. That was really my first writing. My first writing job was a Lone Gunman, so it was. Uh, Is that true? Right. Well, I paying writing. Well, uh, I had a paying writing job and features and things that never got made, but first TV job. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun gig. Except, I had done I had done face casts before, and they had to do one for the the things pulling the skin up. So I had to do a thing, and it was the only time in my life I couldn't do it. I got terribly claustrophobic, mm-hmm. and I think it's because I had seen someone put the wrong kind of cement on a person's face for a cast. Uh, it was Jeff Daniels. Oh my and, god! And yeah, it was the, for the somehow they put the wrong cast on, and he they had to chip it out. To oh give my god! No pain shots in the face, so that they tearing it off would all of his eyebrows and eyelashes gone. Uh, yeah. <sighs> It was one of those inexplicably weird, terrible things. Well, yeah, well, that'll do it. I like tales out of school. Good Lord, I never heard that before. Okay. Uh, so anyway, okay. I, it was the only time I ever got really weird about it, because I'd had you know a bunch of things done for Star Trek and for uh, Little Nicky. I, I had casts. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, because I love wow. the makeup stuff. It's fun. I gotta go back and watch and binge watch. Like I, I, I watched the first episode, Tom. The first one that you wrote that was with Aaron Paul, wasn't it? That's right. Aaron Paul was in my first X Files episode. Yeah, but I had written two. Two Lone, Lone Gunman was a show uh, around season eight of the X Files. I had written two episodes for that uh, first. Okay, and then we got canceled. And I, I obviously I have seen some X Files episodes, but I want canceled this canceled this on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. I went back just because you'd written that one, and of course with Aaron Paul, the with the the Gilliverse family there. I went back and watched that one. But here is another question uh, from it says not Michael uh, says, could you tell how it was to receive receive that death call from the show creators? <laughs> I'm sure I've told this story before. Yeah, I mean when I wasn't working, I'd drive around uh, Albuquerque, uh, and I'd go to used bookstores. One of the things they used to do, I found out there was one, you know, 25 miles north. I'd go up and see that one collecting all this crap I have. And uh, so anyway, I was kind of, it was the one right in town. It was one near the lousy Italian restaurant. And so I, uh, I was on my way there and I, my phone rings and it's, uh, it's Vince and Peter. And my first thought was, and I told them, is this the death call? <laughs> and they said, oh, oh. I said, okay, I'll pull over. And I pulled into the parking lot of the used bookstore and I sat there because we we were doing talked about, you know, this is this is coming to a head one way or another, and I said, yeah, we just wanted to let you. That's cool, cool guys, you know. That's I, I think, uh, and as they put it, and it was exactly right. Uh, my uh, Chuck's job is to move Jimmy closer to Saul, story wise, arc wise, and his. Uh, it, it, he he became kind of a ghost pain in the ass rather than just a, a brother who's a problem, you know? So, uh, listen, I, I, I had such fun on the show and I thought that I was very pleased with the way the character went out. Uh, you know, I still believed as an actor that there was nothing wrong with Chuck, you know? And that's what you have to do. You can't, nobody plays a villain really convincingly unless they think they're in the right yeah you, know? you gotta believe it uh, and what was writing i was remember good. sorry i remember you uh tweeting five years ago or so <laughs> this tweet is stuck in my head because it was my episode it was right before episode 109 aired and it was something to the effect of remember nobody is just one thing basically sort of putting it out there warning people that the Chuck McGill you know is not the Chuck McGill you know, and yeah. so uh, how was that as a as an actor receiving script pages that you might not have thought that you were this person up until that point, and then all of a sudden oh. it takes a but it all it all made sense again. It was all based on oh, yeah. things you had brought to the character. I was really thrilled, and it, again, it was a call. It was a phone call from Vince and Peter saying we were talking about about episode nine. And I was in New York because I had been going back and forth because I was doing, uh, you know, uh, all the way in New York. 
but I was, you know, taking some, some days off and everything. So I was in New York and I got the, got that call and I, I said, yeah, this sounds pretty interesting. And then when I got the pages, it was like, babe, this is awesome. <laughs> it's like, I, oh man, I get to turn the gun on the, on the audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. And a slow gun too, kicking, kicking that table and kicking and kicking. And, you know, is it going to happen? About, you're talking about the last, you're talking about, we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about season one. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Right. So not to turn. Yeah. 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 Oh, fantastic. Here's a, a super chat question from uh, Matt Manfredi. He says, uh, this is for Tom, actually. Uh, have there been any ideas that you've had for Better Call Saul that you really loved but had to drop because you realized something from Breaking Bad contradicted it? Uh, that happens occasionally. Uh, every once in a while. Uh, nothing. I don't think there's anything I could talk about. Right, okay. But, uh, but you know, we, we'll think of something and then we'll go back. We'll, we'll get the... You know, we'll go online and look at Netflix and look at an episode of Breaking Bad and say, oh, crap, we can't do this because this character is saying this or he knows this. And that happens a bunch with uh, it happened a lot with uh, Hector and the cousins and oh. more, more of the cartel world, because uh, there's so many the politics of Gus Fring and what how he fits into the cartel. So there's a lot of like, oh, let's have him do this or that. And then, oh, crap, we can't do that because the cousins no Mike from earlier or so there's some of that it's like cogs in the wheel right it's like okay we can't do that that's going to throw the whole thing off course I get it for sure um, here's a good question from Arabella um, she says after Chuck's death Jimmy receives that letter uh, from him he wrote some beautiful things and before dying he told Jimmy he never really mattered that much to him so uh, were the letters content fake I cannot speak to that okay no that's a that's a fan theory that I don't understand why it goes around. It was absolutely a letter from uh, Charles McGill that he had written in, into his will. And it was, yeah, years, years earlier before Jimmy made it into the, into the uh, law profession. I forget what the timing was, but it's definitely a, definitely Chuck's letter. Okay. Nice. Nice. For sure. Uh, a question from Eamon. Eamon is one of our helpers here on the show as well, too. And this is actually coming from his wife, Louise. Uh, Michael, before the COVID lockdown, did you panic by any aluminum foil? <laughs> First of all, it's mylar. <laughs> there, it's right. That's right. Aluminum foil. Is it yep. mylar? I think it is. It is mylar? Yeah. 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 Uh, no, no. I, I saw enough of that. Three years worth of that. It was. It was fine. Uh, but here's the thing. That's really a kind of a warm item. Yeah, it I mean, is. They, they really do work. Those those space blankets really do work if you're out in the, you know, in the cold. Uh, yeah. My daughter is doing a lot of camping these days, and and uh, yeah, I, I wonder if she has some. I never got any, you know, but uh, well, it sounds like a good purchase. Yeah, it saved Mike out in the desert. Yeah, that's yeah. season five for sure. I'll I'll say that without when we started talking about that, the condition that it was that you know everybody came up with for for Chuck worried me a little bit because I was like, is this going to be real? Are people going to believe this? And your performance, you whatever you did to believe it. It, I was worried it was going to come off as maybe silly or people are going to laugh at it, but tell it, you a secret, it, was, okay? it was as tragic as it needed to be. I'll tell you the secret. The secret is that you guys never told me. You guys never told me that Chuck was mentally ill. We didn't know. You, right. And it grew up that way. And I saw no reason. Once it's I kind of story-wise, once outside looking in, I kind of had a better feel for it. From inside, Chuck never felt it. He never felt it. He was still on the phone with those people, trying to get them to turn off that last shred of electricity right up to the very end. It was completely 100% real. So by not telling me that the character was mentally ill, I became, it. the, the cliche is, if you're playing a guy who thinks he sees unicorns, you can't play a guy who thinks he sees unicorns. You have to play a guy who sees unicorns. Mm -hmm. Or it's not going to land. Mm -hmm. So you guys did me a huge favor, and uh, you know you did all the heavy lifting. A great, a great acting lesson for any actors listening tonight. Exactly. See the unicorn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you because you were so into it. I, I know this wouldn't affect you like an actual illness, like a, you know after from nine to five or after, outside of the show. But have you ever been like in a place after the show, like a casino or something, where it's just insane with things like that? And does it ever just make you think for a second a little differently about all the waves that we're all experienced to and exposed no. to? 
No, and I, I in 2015, I did go to a casino. The family went to Vegas for, for two, three days, inexplicably. We actually had some fun. But uh, no, no, I, I'm not crazy about that scene anyway, but it's I never felt anything. That's good. Like that. I'm just curious if it was hard to turn off. That's good. That shows how uh, professional you I've are. Known people, I've known people who had terrible physical reactions to the Santa Ana winds, which are these hot, dry winds. And doesn't just just it's hot and dry and windy outside, but I've known people who were made it made them ill, it made their flesh crawl, it made their headaches. They got their hair was standing on end. Read the first paragraph of Red Wind by uh, Raymond Chandler. You'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, but I had to just buy into this the same way that people really felt that from the Santa Ana winds really feel it. Thank you. Uh, from Saul Goodman on Twitter, a uh, really popular account, says, what? Michael, Tom, and Eric, uh, or says hi to us. Uh, was How hard was it to prepare for chicanery? Uh, definitely my top three favorite episodes, Emmy performances uh, by far. Thank you. Beautiful. Uh, well, it was, it was a couple of long days. A couple of long days. And uh, Gordon Smith, correct? Yeah. Uh, who doesn't he, he writes a lot of words. So he wrote a lot of words. And Damn you, Gordon. Very, very good words. Very a lot, a lot of fun to do. Uh, but I did get a call. I was, again, I was in New York, and uh, I got a call from um, Dan, director. Uh, he's saying, how do you want to do this? Because it really was, there was going to be a two and a half days of just that scene uh, and without a lot of breaks and everything. What's uh, which way do you want to do it? I said, look, doesn't matter. I'm going to I'm going to be up and and working on this stuff. I'll have the lines as far as, you know, how, I, I never know. I feel in the moment I feel that I'm getting exhausted after hour 10 or 12. Uh, I start getting a little a little fatigued. But I also know that eventually they let you go home. So so, you know, I just I just knew my words and everything and they Covered it and covered it and covered it and covered it. And uh, it's a really good scene. It really works very well. Beautiful. Beautiful scene. And here's a question from Elizabeth. Uh, and here again, to, with, talking about some protecting of the brothers a little bit. When Chuck was uh, with his mom at her last moment uh, in the hospital there at her deathbed, uh, he withheld the last words. Out, or did he uh, withhold the last words out of spite or protection? I can imagine that Jimmy would obviously feel guilty for not being there. So was it was it spite or, or protection? Or I, I'm going to assume probably spite, but I'm, I'm just guessing here. Um. I don't think you'll ever find a person to admit to spite. Right. Uh, the, that's that's kind of a color a colorized word. I do think that he would rather die himself than let Jimmy know what had happened in that room. And he, once he considered that, once he was asked, did she say anything? I think it was a nanosecond before he could have answered, and he waited another half a second and answered. Never any doubt in his mind that he was not going to not going to share that. It seems it seems like spite. It made mm -hmm. perfect sense to Charles McGill at that point. So, yep, did it. For I apologize for no one, including myself. Here's a good one from Price of Reason. Uh, the, the step. The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead. I, I was going to step out of the Gilliverse for a moment, and uh, my wife and I just watched Lost in America recently with uh, Gary Marshall's amazing. Performance was Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall, your first entrance into uh, television was was he the first yes. person to hire you? And Laverne Shirley, or did you? Yeah, no, I had I had not done no TV at that point. We were David Lander, Harry Shearer, and myself were a, an act called the Credibility Gap, <clears throat> satirical act, and um, we did some stuff. And one of the things we did was these two characters that David and I had been doing since college. And Penny got this show, and, and she, her brother Gary was producer, and she said, you know what, you guys could write on the show, the three of you, and maybe try to work those characters in, you know, down the line. So we went to this uh, uh, um, party at Penny's house, and Lowell Gans and Mark Rothman were there, uh, who were two of the producers. Gary was not there. Um, but we just, we launched into some Lenny and Squiggy stuff they, that no one had ever heard before, and we never did again. We had never done it before. It was about them going to Butler school. Uh, and we just never did it again. But the producers <laughs> went, 
All right. <laughs> and so we met and we met with, with Gary uh, on the Monday. <laughs> and because I wasn't in the guild, they had to audition at least one other actor who was in the guild for my part. And it was Tim Thomerson. And Tim is an amazing actor and a very, very funny stand-up comic. Um, and uh, But it was sort of like he they just read him because they knew they had to read somebody. It was like an act. They were hiring these two guys. <laughs> that doesn't have a card. <clears throat> so anyway, Tim, uh, Tim actually was supposed to appear down the line as another character, but he got real busy making movies and stuff. So, yeah. Nice. Nobody knows. Well, here, here's a question. Here to, getting we auditioned some other actors for we auditioned some other actors for Charles McGill, but you were our first choice, and you were we needed a backup in case you couldn't do it. You, I know you were on Broadway at the time. Who who reached out to you about the character? Do you remember who was the first person? Did you was it Vince or did uh, uh, who who contacted you initially? I first heard the rumor from Brian. You were backstage at uh, he he mentioned to me, you know, they're doing a prequel to Charles, that sounds awesome and then a few days later he said you know you're going to get a call about playing his brother oh yeah <laughs> serious yeah Gilligan and yeah okay so it just sounded like a good idea and uh then they they called and started talking to me a little bit and uh they they cast me and and it was great i got a great phone call great message on my phone i was i was on stage like a message on my phone from Odenkirk. It was just, he just sounded so happy. Yeah, it was really, it was a good, it was a good deal. Beautiful. And that actually answered the very next question as well, too, from our Super Chat. It was Price of Reason. And I'll just read it to you just so uh, I can read it to you. It says, Michael, Oops. love your work. Were you surprised that you were offered the role of Chuck and uh, Tom, who was responsible for the stroke of genius in casting? So both those questions were answered. But obviously, you're a big fan favorite. It's beautiful. Well, we know, yeah, we know, uh, I, I knew Vince from uh, from X Files days, and Tom briefly at the very end of my X Files universe. With that, it was the one episode of uh, Gunman, and then the, the that the ep- in the tank when we were in the the Paramount tank, not Paramount, the Universal tank shooting with the. Uh, that's right. Uh, yeah. You're, you're right. Right. So I remember yeah, the, the boat on the water there. Yeah, that's actually that's what we happened to share a screen. I don't know if you know I'm in that episode. I'm my only uh, speaking part on it on television. I am a speaker at the science convention oh uh, when the gunmen run through. So <laughs> wow. there I am. Amazing. Small world. Trivia. That's something I didn't know. Uh, I need to work with Frank Spotness more because he keeps he keeps wanting to put me in things. Yeah, yeah. That was Frank's idea. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. No, no problem. No problem at all. That's that's funny. Uh, so where was the question? I, the last one I had here. Uh, this one is, okay, this is more of a question statement. Arabella saying, Michael, could you play, please say hi to Gianfranco? Michael is his favorite. Uh, Gianfranco, I think that's it. Could you say hello to Gianfranco? Jean, as in J-E-A-N? Uh, yeah, G-I-A-N. Oh, Gianfranco. Oh, it's one word. Yeah. Hi, Gianfranco. I salute you. Right hand. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, there was, here was a good one here as well, too. We about Gianfranco. We could talk about stuff. There's Gianfranco and Giancarlo, and there you go. Um, Andrea asks, what did you enjoy most about your time uh, on Better Call Saul? Obviously, fam- the, the family you've come across and everything, but what were some of the magical moments for you in your time? Um, I, You know, the whole, the, the whole three years has a funny little memory bubble around it. And uh, uh, it, mainly what I remember is is this great cast and this great bunch of, of uh, this great staff, amazing production people. And, uh, you know, just the, the best people on set, funny, patient, um, gorgeous in many cases. Uh, you know, and it was just really, really a good time. Uh, I had known uh, Ray a little bit. I'd worked with her once before, and I was a huge fan. And to find out that she had these major chops and was just getting better all the time, she really has become one of the best actresses on television. I, it's totally, I think everybody agrees with that. Um, and it's just been such a joy to see. And, uh, you know, and I, you have specialized relationships with people. You know, Patrick and I talk about old, you know, 80s rock and roll. You nice. know, that, that's who he is. And that's yeah, who I am. A little older, but uh, yeah. 
So, um, yeah, I guess I guess the people. But I also kind of like tooling around. I love the sunsets and the uh, the stormy skies, uh, and uh, just driving the the, uh, the the highway through uh, Madrid. Did you do that? You drive through Madrid, Tom? Yeah, there's nothing there, but it's quaint as hell. <laughs> yeah. Of course, several times. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, I really, I, I, you know, I'm not a desert guy, but I really do. I, I did like the state very much, and people were very sweet. So, just in general, I had a good time. Nice, nice, um, and I, I'm going to have to. I would probably Who have to. Who's the most annoying person to be around on set? Other than Tom, who's the most annoying person to be around on set between between Ray and Banks? I would imagine. I wouldn't call Banks annoying. That's like that's like calling the Grand Canyon deep. It's something <laughs> more than that. No, I, I adore Jonathan. He's the gorgeous one I was mentioning before. He, yeah. And he's the only guy in the figure, older yeah. than me. Oh. So, uh, yeah, I, I treasure <laughs> for that. I'm, I'm sure tomorrow I would have to hand over my YouTube credentials if I didn't ask at least one Spinal Tap question. And this is even from, isn't even from me, as much as I'd love to ask one. This is from Quest for Quality. Question for uh, your former rock star life. As a lifelong Spinal Tap junkie, are there any secret unreleased songs that you might someday release that I could turn up to 11? Ah. Uh. It's complicated. As okay. They say on, yeah. Um, you know, I have, I, I write a lot of songs and, and some of them would work for the band. Uh, we just kind of haven't been able to do that. The last time we wrote anything was uh, for the 2009 album, but that existed mainly to re redo the old ones to get them sounding better and to get them uh, so that we owned the copyrights on the performances because MCA still owned the video that don't, don't get started on that mm -hmm. illegal, illegal stuff, you know, but here, here's a lesson without saying any more about this. If you're doing something, if you're, if you've written something, if you're creating something, own your shit. Okay. Don't wake up one morning and find out that it has somebody else's name on it. You'll only be sorry later. So really, you know, if, if you reach that point where you go, well, I got to sell this thing, but they want to do this and, and I really need the money you're going to need something else later on. There's a lot of money you're not going to see and a lot of uh, just, you know, bragging rights that you can, you know, it, say, this is mine. This is what we did. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, that's what I would say. I'm not the world's biggest Kanye West fan, but I, I can appreciate where he was coming from going after these masters and some of these other artists out there trying to own, uh, you know, the, the, the rights to their material. Because yeah. especially now, right? Like there's there's no touring. So we can't we can't even make that money anymore, uh, you yeah. know. So selling it and, and licensing it to productions and uh, you know whatever that's the only thing you've got. Well, I love that. Uh, I love some of this in-house uh, concert stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. We are competing with my friend Jason Isbell right now, which is a shame because oh. he's amazing. And uh, but he's doing a concert tonight. You know, it's from from his his home, his barn, and it's it's going to be amazing. Patton Oswald is doing one next week. Yeah, arm's length, uh, I think it's called. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And listen, I'm there for that. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm for, you know, supporting the arts. And if someone's got a gig for me, I'm for supporting myself. So I've been doing some things from the house. I've been doing some rug, uh, so I can't talk about it. I've been doing <laughs> a wonderful animated series uh, that I've done a bunch of, and you'll, you'll know about that pretty soon. Working with some of my old uh, Animaniacs friends and, it's really, really fun. Nice. Well, yeah. it just just one quick thing while we're talking about these virtual performances, like the stand-up comedy. I know what it's like as a musician to perform for people, like behind a webcam. And, you're, and sometimes you see them in the chat say, hey, that was great, Eric, or blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, great. It's the equivalent of an applause. What is it like for comedy when you really, really, like, because you're, you're a great comedian, um, what, and Patton as well. What is it like for you guys and girls out there doing this behind a camera and you're waiting to feed on those people for, did it, did it go? Did the, did the joke reach? Did, it, did You know, how do you do that? Well, I don't do that. No, I know, but how, you know, in the world, I, in the world I don't of know. it. Here's the thing. Uh, there is, do you, um, you know who Alan Bennett is? Alan Bennett was one of the members of a group called Beyond the Fringe, okay. uh, brilliant uh, British uh, satirical quartet in the 60s. Uh, and he became a wonderful playwright. He wrote History Boys and, and uh, The Madness of George III and, and all these, you know, he's, he's a serious writer. He wrote a series of monologues. Not all of them are funny, 
I call talking heads. Not not all of them are funny, but the ones that are funny are funny, even though you're not hearing anyone. It's just someone talking right to camera, but it's talking to us, and it works on that level. It's just different, you know. Patton knows what's funny. <laughs> That's clear. Yeah, you know, he, he he knows when something is landing or something. He doesn't. You know, he's he's not just a great comic. He's he's a great historian and and uh, and observer and curator of it. And uh, so he'll be fine. You know, I think if you're another kind of comic, it might be different. Mm -hmm. I don't think you know. I don't think Gallagher's going to work. No. <laughs> yeah. That's not that's not going to fly. That's yeah. a, the Pat would be the type of person to be like, okay, here's my joke. Internet, do with it as you see fit, and he knows it's going to work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, did you get some more things on your on your end there as well? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, we were lucky to have Michael back in season four and, and uh, sing that ABBA song, <laughs> which I knew you were really excited about doing. But, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not a big ABBA fan. I love Chikatita, and the rest of it can go to hell. But uh, and I said, so you know that song? Chris. <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, it was a big. It was a number one song. Uh, I don't care. I've never heard it. I heard it, and I went, oh, I, I wouldn't have listened to all of this if it, if it came on the radio. This isn't a very good song. But here's the thing: I I grew to kind of love it, and I don't, you know, I Paul, you know, Paul Myers, uh, is this really cool rock writer and guy, and he said he reacted to some tweet thing and i he said are we not we're not allowed to like abba now i said you can like whoever you want i like some i like you know, some of abba i don't have to like everything but it was perfect for there was a perfect choice for this because it really was it was two guys in competition neither one of them admitting it one of them a lot better at it and it's a song about winning it was a, it was ingenious <laughs> and it was really fun to sing so and I like the song a lot. Better. And Bob Odenkirk, Bob Odenkirk being such a horrible singer, just he didn't even try to sing badly. That is him doing his best. Oh, natural. Before we went, he said, "Now, yeah, I'm not going to be kidding here. I'm going to be really trying to sing good." And I said, "Oh, great, great." And then he starts, and I go, "Oh, okay." Slam dunk. Yeah, then you just <laughs> steal it. You, it's, you're a great singer, obviously. I did a retweet of that too. I, I took that video and I took the audio out and I actually put Spinal, Spinal Tap's Big Bottom and I almost had it sync to both of you guys' mouths. It was pretty funny. Oh my um, God, that's crazy. Yeah, here's uh, Michelle, a question says, and a lot of this was kind of touched base on tonight, but I want to at least ask her a question. She says, a uh, question from Michael, does Chuck actually love Jimmy, uh, hate him, jealous of him? Please explain uh, Chuck's feelings for his brother. Obviously Chuck's gone now, but was, was there some love? Was there some hate, a little bit of all of that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think as long as, you know, I think until he realized that Jimmy was duplicitous, that Jimmy was a liar, that he was stealing money, that he, he looked at the at the candy store as being sort of, you know, the corner shop as being, you know, kind of his bank, um, something that never would have crossed Chuck's mind. I think that's when things started to turn because he started realizing that not only is Jimmy kind of the, the surprise kid, the, the, the baby, <clears throat> he's also getting away with murder. And it was one of those things I couldn't tell my folks about. Um, it, 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 it got under my saddle, but for some reason I didn't confront it. Now I was off. Like I say, I was out of high school. I was, I was into college. I was into the law. I was very busy making myself the most important man in the family. And I saw this guy was looking more and more like a landmine. I think that's when things really started to go south. And that can happen, you know? You can love your little brother until he, you're, he takes your car out and crashes it, or takes your girlfriend away. <laughs> you know? And crashes things, your car. <laughs> things change. And all brothers are complicated. True. You know, even the simplest pair of brothers are very complicated. Sisters too, I imagine. All siblings, I imagine. I agree with that. I, I saw a really good interview of you with the other That's day. What the importance, that was the importance of the karaoke scene. The karaoke scene was, we had wanted to show that these guys did love, the, the whole thing, post-karaoke, when they go back to Jimmy's place and lie in bed together, he was going to make pancakes for him in the morning. But there was genuine love there. And it just, yeah. 
got lost in all the yeah, jealousy. That was a special night. That was a special night for them. That was sort of like, well, however he got here, this is what he is now. This is going to be fine. He's not going to, he's going to make money and he's not going to, I'm not going to be bailing him out anymore. So there were all those positive things. And I really, Chuck was forced into, into a good time that night. And he really, it kind of, it did mellow him quite a bit. So that was very touching for sure. Uh, here, here's a question from Mrs. Wexler, and this is what's so cool about this whole Gillivers and Universe and all the work that all of you have done outside of this uh, program and the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, and things of that nature. You know, like, I didn't know much about Mr. Show. You know, like, Tom grew up, you know, he knew Mr. Show and stuff like that before, you know, that's how he knew Bob and going up into this kind of stuff. I am coming the other way around. I watch all these shows. I go back and discover some, what some of the work was like before. You know, it's a hidden gem finding these things. And no, no matter how you find it, it's great that you find it. But here's a question from Mrs. Wexer. Did you ever make the connection of being a teacher at a law school on Mr. Show to being a lawyer on Better Call Saul? You know, I didn't until well after the fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was I was doing John Hausman. I was doing this this guy who was who was in the paper chase and he played exactly this guy. That's what they wanted me to do. So I kind of did that. But then I don't, it was probably in the middle of the second season that it occurred to me. Yeah, I was your law teacher then, back then, when everyone was jumping out the window or whatever they were doing in that sketch. It was just so bizarre. <laughs> that that was good. And that's the thing, too. I, I'm sure, like, you as an as an actor and as an entertainer, even with some of your musical works, um, you don't really care how people find you. As long as they find you and then, you know, and dis discover more, too, right? People come in yeah. and they find these new bands on the radio and they think they're a brand new band. But meanwhile, they're just doing a cover of somebody from the 60s or 70s. And like, oh, I'm going to go check their back catalog. I remember when my son was about uh, about 10 or 11 and uh, I got a call from him after where I was, I got a call. Oh, I, I was, we were just living in separate houses. But anyway, I got a call from him and he says, have you ever heard of somebody named Gilna Ratner? Oh, geez. And I said, Gilda Ratner. Yeah. Gilda Ratner. And I said, yeah. Does She's the funniest person I've ever seen in my life. He had seen a couple of SNL things. I've heard playing the little the little Girl Scout <laughs> for alone in a room, which is more. You know, I said, I said, Fletch, you got really, really good taste. She she is awesome. Then I had to tell her that there ain't going to be no new Gilda Radner, you know, and it was I broke my heart a little bit. But listen, we're watching a lot of dead people these days. We go to YouTube and we watch Sid Caesar and Imogen Coca and Howie Morris and Carl Reiner just recently lost Carl Reiner one of my heroes uh you know and that's that's a thing we got you know we 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 have something that a lot of professions don't have we leave tracks and these tracks can be very entertaining you know uh Turner Classics I think is one of the greatest educational tools for actors for filmmakers especially uh for writers um, it, it's, it's, it's invaluable. It, it is something that everybody should do. They're serious about making any kind of art. They should spend a little time, even watching bad stuff on TCM, because you learn to tell the difference. You know, you learn that there's John Houston and there's Hugo Haas <laughs> and a lot in between, you know? Well, one of the blessings and the curses of the internet too is because what what goes out there stays out there. That can be a bad thing, but it's also a good thing now. Archiving all these things that once our heroes are gone, you know, uh, if you can't get to the library and get these things on, you know, uh, DVD or Blu-ray or God forbid uh, VHS or something, we've got the internet now to archive all this stuff. Yeah. And sometimes there are some great restorations that people are doing. You know, some of these mm -hmm. silent films and cleaning them right up. It's just there's a world of uh, entertainment that will be out there for our grandchildren, great grandchildren, and so on and so forth. As long as the world is still here. Well, what time you got? Yeah, I know. Speaking of the world <laughs> being here, here's a question. Um, this is from Price of Reason. This is a good question, uh, and this is more towards you, Tom. Um, but uh, it says, big fan of your work, uh, as opposed to uh, Better Call Saul. So many shows these days sacrifice good storytelling for pushing politics and topical agendas. Um, why can't more shows focus on story like you guys do? And I agree that the story, that the, the storytelling in this, uh, in the Gilverse is, is second to none. Um, any, anything you can comment on his question? Uh, nothing, nothing at all wrong with being political or stored, you know, saying what you believe and getting that out there. But, uh, I feel like from the start of breaking bad on, there was a feeling of wanting to do something 
timeless. And once you start adding politics or what's going on, even though we're set in a very specific place and time, 2004, we never never mention, you never hear anything about the war that was going on at the time or, you know, there's there's so little news that we add or, you know, know, landmarks about this moment in time Mm -hmm. and it gives it a, even though it's set in 2004, uh, Better Call Saul, it gives it a timeless feeling. So it's something that, you know, you go back and watch those early episodes of Breaking Bad from, you know, 10 years ago, 14 years ago. What was it? Yeah. Uh, it still feels fresh in a way. So we try not to put any, any kind of current events or anything that's going on and just make it about the character and what they're emotionally experiencing. That's right. And that, you and I talked about this on the show before uh, in a recent episode, Tom, where he was like, you don't see like uh, Kim Wexler saying, just I had to update my Facebook status one second. You know what I mean? Like you're not saying those kind of things and you really date, you know, where you're at in time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, that that kind of, the technology is unavoidable, but uh, yeah. the current events or something. You ever play that game? Tend that to avoid. Game. Or even, you know, we don't ever, you never see a holiday on, on Better Call Saul. Yeah. The way, you know you that, see the Christmas episode, the Halloween episode. You know that game you can play when you watch a movie that you really like, say, you know, Three Days of the Condor or something. And <clears throat> you sit there, you watch it with people, and you say the word cell phone. Stops the plot cold. Stops <laughs> the plot cold. Yeah. Every, somebody pointed out, well, how about every episode of Seinfeld? If they all had cell phones, there would be no episodes of Seinfeld. Yeah. You know? And it's true. We have a different, it's a different world right now. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So. Well, we talked, awesome. we talked comedy a moment ago. Uh, and I was, we're still going to stay there for a second. Uh, Matt has a question saying, Michael, has there ever been a scene that you've done that you've had trouble getting through just because it was making you laugh too much? Yeah. Um, Fred, uh, the Fred Willard scene in Spinal Tap. Okay. We were talking about it the other night uh, at the Air Force Base. And nobody had any idea what Fred was going to say. We just said, we'll put him in a, in a uniform and go Fred. And he, we never heard any of that stuff before. And it was so brilliant. And he was a brilliant improviser, but he also prepped stuff. Okay. He also curated reality for the guy. And so it, it, it was just very hard. And you can see Chris start to go a little bit. <laughs> Chris has to, he, he actually moves behind another actor. So yeah. Do you know, do you ever see Peter Bull in um, Strange Love? No. When, when, you know the film Dr. Strange Love? When uh, oh. Sellers. Oh, yes, yes. Him, when he's fighting the, 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 the thing, he starts beating his arm to keep himself from highlighting. Oh. And Peter Bull, who is the Russian <laughs> ambassador or the Russian guy, in back of him, suddenly you see him go. <laughs> he just. He, then there's a, there's a, he just goes. There's a cut. There's a cut right after. There's a cut, and it's all of a sudden his face straight again. <laughs> Amazing. You, you yeah, might- it's hard sometimes. That was hard. Um, yeah, there are a couple of times in Chris's movies, um, sometimes working with Penny and Cindy and David Lander and Vernon Shirley, there would be times when we were all a puddle. And the audience is there because we didn't. We always shot in front of a live audience, and they were there just going, "Oh, let's go, guys!" And we're just we can't even talk because we're laughing so hard. So yeah, those things are kind of like fun when they happen, and then the audience gets a little uh, little antsy, but we try not to. Well, a, a good share for sure. And earlier, at the top of the program, you're talking about different books uh, that you suggested to read. But maybe we could take that a little further. Here's a question from uh, who is it from? It was from Henry. Um, maybe some books that you could suggest reading during quarantine. Any any things you could suggest uh, uh, that maybe that's crossed your desk recently? Or not a lot of new stuff. Uh, although I read a pretty good book called Tell No One, Tell No One, Say Nothing, something like that. But it's about the Irish. Uh, Irish um, Troubles of the 70s. It's very good. Wish I had a look at it. Oh, I read um, Woman in White by Wilkie Collins, which is really, really good. And I'm just finishing Tale of Two Cities. And I'm also reading a James Lee Burke, who's one of my favorite contemporary writers, awesome writer. Um, and 
My wife and I are reading the new ton of French. We read to each other at night because we're the corniest couple in the world. And so uh, we just started that one, and it, she's a wonderful writer. So, uh, yeah, I like all those. Good ones. Tom? There, were, there was a, one more question. Everything I read like... Go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I think I'm having a bad internet connection. I apologize. So maybe I'm delaying. No problem. Everything I everything I read is about making movies. I just opened up the Making of Goodfellas book. Oh, no. I finished oh, yeah. uh, the two uh, Kubrick the Kubrick books, the Making of 2001: Space Odyssey, and there's a book by his former assistant, which is which is great. So I'm I'm really in the Books about making a movie. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. You've read the, you've read the Neil Lumet, of course. Yes, and you've read the um, uh, the uh, Roth Lillian Roth picture. I have. It's about the, it's the first uh, making of. Book. It's about the making of oh, John Huston's okay. uh, Red Badge of Courage. Oh wow! Okay, she invented the form. She really did. Yeah. So, did you check that one out? Yeah, it's very cool. There is a good, there's a good question about Laverne and Shirley here. I uh, heard it's from Lori. Uh, what was one of your, uh, uh, what was your favorite memory of Laverne and Shirley? Obviously, and I'm old enough to I remember watching that uh, as it would air. Um, so that was pretty cool. I didn't have to watch it in reruns. But uh, can you, favorite memories? Well, there's a lot of them. Yeah, even there, even share one. one. Show, the 13th show was the script was a little weak. It was a little kind of not working. We cast it well. We had it. We had uh, our friend Peter Ebling came in to do a guest shot, a shot. <clears throat> and we had a really funny woman playing the waitress. And so we we had a show that was kind of a mess, except the cast was pretty good. So we just said, okay, let's do this. And it was too long and everything. So I said, let's just pick up the pace. So when we shot it, there was this moment we were shooting it, and it's mysteriously going really well, and the audience is loving it. And so me and Cindy are backstage and we're just like, we have a quick exit and then an entrance. So she looks at me and she goes, the show's cooking. And I said, yeah, the show's cooking. I, for some reason, I remember that's that moment so much because it was my first TV, you know, the show had been on the air. It's, it was a hit already, but we thought, Oh, can we make this Turkey fly? And it was just, it was one of those things. It was like, yeah, we, we are in good hands with us. So it was really kind of a pat on the back that we gave ourselves. And uh, but there were moments like that. Um, there were some moments, some really impressive people came to see us. I won't drop their names, but that was kind of cool. I was just like, nobody knows me. And all of a sudden, these people I've heard of and seen on TV, and you know, we met Arkin. <laughs> and uh, I know I can't, I'm not going to drop any more names, but it was just amazing to me. It was just one. That's beautiful. Yes, yeah. Here, uh, this is a good question for you. This will be the last one for the evening. We'll wrap up here within a moment here. But we talked a lot about reading, but this is a good question about writing. And this isn't even for Tom. This is for you. Uh, TVC15 says, uh, Hey, Mike, I've recently discovered your blog. And I think I have a link to it in the website as well, too, to your uh, website. But I fell in love with your writing style. Are you going to post something in the near future? And could you, okay, and he's also oh, recommended books about the industry. Well, both you guys talked about uh, the industry books. But do you think you'll get back to blogging a little bit more? Well, yeah, I, you know, I'm very terrible about it. I, I, I'll go for a year without putting anything on. Uh, the last thing I did was the thing about Hopalong Cassidy, you know, so uh, that should give you an idea of my state of mind. <laughs> I'm enjoying my second childhood is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've been actually been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of work in the student, my quote unquote studio here. A lot of songs that I've written, you know, going back years and years and making you know, nice new versions of them, and uh, that's kind of what I'm doing mostly. But I will, I will blog more if you if you think so. Good. Yeah, some of it's okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah, I've come across the website as well too, and obviously doing research and things like that. I just went through a couple of the posts there as well. That's that's I'll great. Do it more often. Good. Good. Well, we're going to let you fly in a second, but we'll let you know as well, too. One of your on-screen colleagues is going to be here tomorrow for a special time, you know, talking yeah. back talking back to that uh, that sp special scene where uh, the battery was slipped into your pocket. Uh, Lavelle Crawford, Hill Babineau, oh, is going to be stopping uh, by tomorrow. And he's only coming tomorrow because he's on stage right now, like on Friday, so we can't do Fridays for him at all. So we'll uh, we'll make sure to say hi to him for you as well. Be, uh, please do. Please do. Give my love. Yeah. 
That'd be awesome. Well, Michael and Tom, uh, I, I wanted to take a second for Tom here as well, too. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as Tom said earlier at the top of the show, Tom will be back when he can. So Tom has a, a nice warmed up seat, co-host seat waiting for him whenever he's able to return. And, uh, and Michael, I will also extend an invitation to you sometime next year in 2021 when the world hopefully feels a little bit more normal. If you would ever like to come back, we'll, uh, we'll have you back again as well, too. One question for Tom. Mm-hmm. When they fired you from from inside the Gilliverse, did, did they call you on the phone and you were you in your car? Yeah, I was in the car. I pulled over. I said, is this a death call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, happens to everybody. I, was, I told him, I said, he needs facial hair. I was trying to get him to grow that mustache. We have Eric, a little bit of thank thing. you. Yes. Yeah. I'll, next time you see me, I'll have the big. Okay, good deal. Smalls. Perfect. Yeah, Spotnitz will cast you in something. Eric, Eric, thank you for inviting me to do this. Thank you for, for writing me that email, asking me to do this. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you to my wife and kids also for allowing me to do this breakaway. Uh, it's been a lot of fun over these past. Have we done 10 episodes? 10, 10 tonight. Episodes of this? 10 tonight. 10 tonight. Uh, it is the 10th. It's been a lot of great fun, and I, I will definitely be back. Yes. Okay, we got that on tape. What stays on the internet goes on the internet, stays, uh, and we're good. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Your, your wife and kids have been great support and uh, letting you come out and play with us and the Gilliverse family every Friday night. And, Michael, this has been a dream come true for me as well, too. Obviously, hey. being a Spinal Tap fan, it's part of my DNA. Uh, Better Call Saul, of course, Chuck McGill. Everything that you've done, uh, honor. Thank you so very, very much for giving us Thank 60 you. minutes of your time. Very much. Awesome. We'll Love say, you, John. See you Thank you, Michael. We'll say goodbye to you off the air. Don't go away. We'll say, yeah. See you soon, everyone. See you tomorrow night, 6 p.m. tomorrow night. Special time, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Lavelle Crawford, Hugh Babineau, right here in the Gilliverse. Until then, cheers. Thanks again for tuning in to Inside the Gilliverse with Tom and Eric. Be sure to check back each week for more great discussions and interviews with cast and crew from Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. 